Mr. Gowan, welcome back to Talking the Talk with the Great Southern Brain Fart. Always a pleasure, Mr. You, de Lamont, de Lamont. Uh, and, uh, Mr. Gowan, it's Mr. great. De, de Lamont, de, de la Brain Fart. We got, yeah, it's actually, you know what, I have heard that before, de la Brain Fart. That's, uh, you know, you know it's, it's French, you know, brain meaning brain, fart meaning yeah fart, you know, so it's, you know, very complicated, you know, complex, you know. Excellent. Excellent. We got the linguistics on our side. Now we got the linguistics. People weren't, weren't expecting that, you know, right off the bat. So, you know, you know, you you never know with Lawrence Grumman, you know, we're going to go to school. We're going to talk Slayer. You know, you just never know what's going to happen, you know, and I love that. That's why I I love talking to you. (laughs) All right, good, good. So, let, I have to let say... The <laughs> well, I have to say, even though I know it happened last year, but congratulations on the platinum digital single for uh, Criminal Mind. Well, thank you for bringing that up right off the bat. Uh, that's, it's funny, that's, that's, that's not something people bring up, and yet it's something I want them to bring up really badly. <laughs> you know, because it was it was a wonderful you know it was a surprise uh, they actually presented it on stage uh, at a place where I played with sticks a number of times at uh, Caesars in Windsor Ontario which is right on the border with um, Detroit and it was a kind of a surprise thing I was about to go into the song and this guy from the record company Brad actually came wandering on stage and at first I was a little kind of I was kind of mad at him for a moment. I was like, what the hell are you doing? Get off my stage. Right? <laughs> there was a bit of that, you know, which yeah. doesn't normally kick in. But because I know the guy, I just thought, what are you doing? Like, you know, I'm saying, he must be gassed up or something. He wants to make a speech. But as he walks forward, I could see that he had he had a platinum, um, uh, you know, uh, award. Award, and, right. And you see, a criminal mind went... It was a gold single in Canada. People here don't aren't that familiar with it, um, and they probably have only ever heard it as a stick song. But they, um, uh, it went it went gold like about three weeks after it was released, but way back in 1985. So it, it's taken 35 <laughs> or plus years, I guess. Yeah, but no, 34 years to actually achieve platinum. So that means the other. You know, the, the 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 other half of that equation took that long to uh, to happen, but it, it's still a very rare thing in the music world that you have a that there is a platinum single because quite quite often the uh, the album um, you know kind of 
cuts off the sales of, of, a, of a single. But that one just seems to have survived in, in all formats. Yeah, and so th- what's amazing about that is kind of to like kind of echo back to what you said was that, you know, I mean, it was on the Strange Animal album, came out in 1985. Yeah. Now, you know, yeah. w- like I told you the last time, you know, like when I get into a band or an artist, like, you know, I want everything. I want to hear everything. I want to know everything. So, you know, I've yeah. I've been, I've dug deep into the, the Gowan catalog and everything. And with Strange Animal... Yeah. It doesn't sound dated, if that so, but it does sound like specific to the time period. But for some reason, a criminal mind stands out to me as a track that seemed almost like you were forward thinking a little bit. Because when I listen to that song now, like I would think I could, I could, I could almost believe that you recorded it, you know, within the last couple of years. Well, this is that's that's a great to hear. Thank you for saying that it's really it's it's funny when um when you when you kind of when you've done something in your life that was a long time ago but it still stays with you and that's the beauty of music you know that you know it's in all it's and all its wonders uh it is amazing now when i you know in toronto if i'm at home and i happen to hear it come on the radio mm-hmm. it is funny how I, I do hear it as i don't hear the time uh, you know the I can hear '80s production, yet it doesn't. It still doesn't kind of feel like oh, this this is not the way I would record it today because I really feel uh, that it that it it stands up really well, like any classic rock mm-hmm. uh, track does. You know, I mean, I, I can think of other songs from that era that you know if they were to be recorded today would probably be done differently. But there are great ones that just stand stand out mm-hmm. and. Uh, Although their although their production is of the time, it still it still sounds relevant. You know, I'd say like for example, you know, "Shout" by Tears for Fears, something like that. That still sounds very relevant to me today. And and the Criminal Mind, I think, um, passes that bar. Yeah, I mean, because I, you know, like I said, in going back to the album, you know, what I loved about it is, I mean, absolutely, I mean, you know. You know, I love the song. You know, you know, cosmetics, walking on air, things like that. You know, Gorilla Soldier. Yeah. But for, again, for some reason, a criminal mind always just kind of popped out of that album, where it just sounded like, yeah, you were kind of almost forward thinking, artistically, you know, and creatively. What was it about that one song that, like you said, that kind of stood stood on its own away from the pack, if that makes sense. Well, there, there was, a, I think, if you think of the time, it was it was risky subject matter. I think that, uh, you know, to especially with the turnaround, the turnaround in the song being that that you know he's pleading his case, but then admits <laughs> admits that he's as as dark as as it's believed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we all carry that in us to some degree. I, I once heard a thing, maybe about 10 years ago, I heard that every man who looks in the mirror, and I'll include every woman as well. <laughs> hey, it's, uh, it's an inclusive looks, show, man. <laughs> it is very inclusive show. Every man who looks in the mirror, every human that looks in the mirror, is trying to live something down. Something There's something they have done that they're trying to live down. Mm-hmm. I can attest that I think that's true. <laughs> you know, 
Um, it's, uh, you know, there, there's always something that you're, you know, that you're uh, maybe embarrassed to admit or basically don't want to admit, but we all contain the seeds of, uh, of, of what ultimately is in that character in that song. We all have the seeds of that. Whether we decide mm-hmm. to nurture them or not is really what, it, what uh, alters the course of your life. Right. So I suppose... You know, but none of that was in my mind when I when when you know on the writing or the, even the recording of that song. It really was to uh, to try to come up with a lyric and, a, and an approach that was, um, I guess, different or unique or basically uh, beyond what it had come before. It. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are songs in the past that probably touch on the same thing, but not quite in the same way that that piece of music does. And I don't know if you know this, Don, but you know that you know we've just come out with a comic book of that song. That was my next topic. <laughs> oh, good. Because <laughs> I was going to say, in that case, in that case, please continue. Because <laughs> because uh, that was that was another thing that fascinated me was that the fact that you know I mean it's such a strong story within the song. And actually, real quick for those of for those of the listeners that don't know about a criminal mind, like in a right. nutshell. What is because it's a it's a pretty conceptual song. Like, what is the you know kind of Reader's Digest version of the concept of the song? Imagine a criminal in a court of law uh, at the moment when the judge says, uh, "You know, do you have any anything you'd like to declare? Anything you'd like to say?" Mm-hmm. Uh, it's his moment. You know, it's his moment to say what what it is he wants to say, and. Uh, that really is that really is it in a nutshell. And then what mm-hmm. he says is, is 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 all contained within the lyrics of the song, and the emotional way that he that that the character uh, portrays it is really reflected in the in the melodic content of the song. The, the, the melody I had the melody before the lyrics, and I knew I knew that that melody was asking for something. Uh, at that time, I guess would be seen as unusual. Mm-hmm. It's funny though, you know. It's funny when there are people that have that have heard it uh, in the U.S., but quite often not my version. I know it's been used in a lot of rap records. Uh, I, I know that um, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, 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 <laughs> shoot, um, at, what's it? Akon. Oh, Akon okay. is one rapper. That also, uh, uh, Rick Ross used it. I mean, you can find a myriad of, of uses of, of that piece within uh, w- w- a lot within the rap w- world, which is really funny because it's kind of a progressive rock piece, but, but it, it, it made its way over into that uh, way of thinking. There's a great, an excellent Canadian rapper named uh, Maestro, Fresh uh-huh. West Maestro, who did a great version of it. And that, that, that was one that I had my approval of you know because he went through the regular channels but um yeah it, it's amazing how music in one genre can can jump over and, and be embraced in another so i've seen that happen to that song as well well you know because i think with any song that's got a strong lyrical con that's got strong lyrical content but a really strong underlying concept as well can kind of carry over you know that that bridge it kind of bridge that gap between genres but this song yeah. actually transcended outside of music and then into you know a graphic comic book you know and yeah. so you know 
basically they took a seven minute epic and crammed it into a comic book. <laughs> like, I mean, that, I, that's really it. I, honest to God, it's basically it's the comic book of the video of the song is what it is. <laughs> well, so because I mean, I, I've yet to see because of course you know I'm one of these unfortunate Americans who who don't always get to get my hands on Gowan stuff. You know, <laughs> but yeah. What what was it like when you saw the final product? Of the comic book, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of. Well, first of all, again, it's one of these moments where I realized this this that particular song has stuck with me, and it's done uh, it's done amazing things. I mean, when I joined Sticks, it was uh, before I even played a Sticks song. Tommy Shaw said to me, "No, no, play play a Criminal Mind first. You know, when I'm, you know we're in the room together, <laughs> see if our voices sound any good." And by the time I finished, he said, "Okay, let's make that a Sticks song." <laughs> so. <laughs> We we played it we played it a good number of times over the years so so it's it's pivotal in that in that um, in that aspect as well uh, to see it depicted in a comic book I think in a weird way it felt somewhat overdue in in an odd way because in the in the video of the song which in the eighties by the way had right. to be really uh, I'm, how many it had to be somewhat lightened up in its uh, approach because television back then if, if for anyone that's remembers this it sounds so ridiculous now but videos were were getting banned for anything that was kind of seen as uh unsavory you know content however you wanted to find that right it's funny i remember the record company being really concerned they thought this song's a hit but if we don't if we in some way you know uh go over the what, what the censor boards are, were, were allowing to be shown on TV will we'll blow it. Mm-hmm. So I had to I had to do it very cartoon like, and use animation, you know, which which gives you license to um, to somewhat uh, spoon feed it in a more palatable way, I guess. Right. And, uh, and in the video, the the kid in the video, the guy in the video, is actually reading a comic book, and it, so finally, the actual comic book is really what uh, what has come out. Oh, that's fascinating. So, yeah. um, so because I mean, I, I, I can't, I couldn't even imagine like seeing like one of my songs as a comic book. You know what I mean? But I mean, it, it had to have, cool. it had to have been pretty cool to like to like kind of see, you know, like you said, see it kind of in another medium where it just kind of transcended, you know, that you know the music medium in general and gone into a totally another, you know, plane basically. Correct. Correct. It was. Uh, I think one of the uh, one of one of the most brilliant strokes of it, though, was I, I. I thought we have to connect this comic book somehow to that video so that people can hear that this is actually a song that's being uh, that's unfolding here within this book. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's that thing called a QR code, which you know I was a little bit familiar with. You usually see it on real estate signs or something. You know, you hold your phone up to it with the camera on, and suddenly it gives you all kinds of information. Right. So on the on the on the cellophane wrapper of the of the comic, we put a QR code so that if you, if you and it says just scan this with your phone, and the moment you put that up to it, the video starts to play. So you realize, oh, this comic book is a video of this song, you know, and uh, I I, lo- I love that kind of cross referencing. So it's 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 got the the current world and our you know communication wonders connected way back to the. 1980s, you know, high res version of the of a, of a 1980s rock video that people saw 
a number of times on uh, in Canada anyway on much music. Much music, the, yeah. You know, yeah, that was our version of MTV, so to speak. Oh, I remember Much Music because um, a friend of mine, when I was a kid, had a satellite dish, and we ch- we used to watch Much Music more than NP- MTV. So, <laughs> satellite dish. Oh, well, you know, I you I'm really aging about... myself here, by the way. <laughs> I just said satellite no, no, dish. That's okay. <laughs> you'll, you'll still be a lot younger than me, no matter what you do. Um, <laughs> you know, the, you know, it's Much Music really was quite strong. You know, in in hindsight, I realize now that. Um, you know, MTV was, the American market is so large that MTV had to kind of, you know, stay focused on that. Whereas the Canadian market being smaller, we would have the, we would have the best of what's going on in America and the best of what's going on in Britain mm-hmm. and sometimes beyond. But but the, the cross currents of American and British, um, you know, influence, you know, in, in rock music is, is kind of, it turns out that was a kind of a, a really pretty sweet place to be, uh, you know, for the musical cross currents that were flowing through. And much music was a, a great example of that. And I'm sure being such, you know, of course, being a Canadian artist doesn't hurt when it comes to much music, because again, they're, they're going to be, not that they're going to shun the rest of the world, but they're going to be like, oh, homeboys, we must help them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so... Well, yes, that's true. You know, it, 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 in Canada and in America, uh, sorry, and in Australia back mm-hmm. then, uh, in order to kind of guard in some ways a, a, a national profile, uh, you know, in the music world, they, they had they had to, uh, they, they would, you know, <laughs> stations had to play an amount of content. I, I remember someone telling me that <laughs> when they passed that law in Australia, um, at first, the, some of the broadcasters were up, up in arms about it and saying, what, you mean we're going to have to put bands on the radio like ACDC? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, had such, they had such a phenomenal scene locally, but, you know, they were kind of... And the same thing happened in Canada. What, we're going to have to play Rush? We're going to have to play, you know... That, that's really what was what the attitude was, believe it or not. I mean, it sounds so... It sounds so ridiculous now, just like when I'm describing the, the um, censorship that existed on videos, but uh, just because the world's so transformed now with, with the internet, everything is completely, you know, what you and I are talking about right now, We can. this is a worldwide broadcast. That just didn't exist back then, you know? It just didn't exist at all. Even the notion of it was seemed like a fairy tale. But here we are living the fairy tale. I mean, yeah, because what was so funny is like I remember, you know, being a you know being a teenager and watching much music, you know. And of course, it was fascinating to me that for one, my my friend's parents had a satellite dish, a gigantic one, and they're like on the side of their house. But like being able to watch something from Canada, you know, it was almost kind of like watching from the Mars rover. You know what I mean? We're like. Wow, this is what's. But I mean, do you know what I mean? Because like when yeah. you know when you're a teenager and you know you know the the you know, south of Atlanta and Georgia, you know, and you have nothing to do. Like it's like a whole nother world. And one of the things I remember greatly was in America, you know, Blind Melon, for instance, was not. They, they were getting some press, but not a whole lot. And then one time, Much yeah. Music had Blind Melon on, and they did a full set, and we were just like, Oh yeah. 
God, this is like, we, we need to move to Canada. Of course, later on, you know, I still have that want, but that's for totally different reasons, but, you know. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, they, that, that's true. There, there were a lot of live, there was, there was that great live opportunity if a band was being played, Blind Melon had that, that big hit, and so if they were coming to town, it was like, yeah, put them on for half an hour or give them an hour to play live on TV. And, you know, that was, that was a great moment if you if you got that on that on that station. So um, it's funny. Again, you know, you look at it now where you can live stream every single show that you do. Oh, you know, we play tonight in, in Atlantic City. We're playing tonight, and I know there'll be live streaming of all kinds of people holding up their smartphones, etc. But but back then, yes, it was a very different world, very limited. And I think you know, this conversation is leading me to to wonder. If this yet is yet another great offshoot of the internet, is that people are discovering all kinds of things that they may have missed because of the because the gatekeepers of of those eras kind of kept things contained. So suddenly, if you want to discover a band that uh, let's say was extremely popular in in Britain but never really broke through in America, like you know. Uh, I think of a good example like the Jam or, or like Status Quo or some right. bands like that that's got a phenomenal following over there. You can suddenly discover that band and see, okay, this is what must have, this is this is what caught on about these guys, and this is this is the music that that followed that they obviously had a, had a profound influence uh, on, you know. So I love that sort of musical archaeological dig that you can do through the uh, through the internet and uh, and discover all kinds of things that. Um, that you may love. Oh, it's amazing. You know, like, I mean, like, for instance, like, I'm a huge fan of a band out of Sweden called Graveyard. And, you know, I go to Spotify and, you know, of course I buy all their stuff first, you know, because I like to support bands. But then, Whenever I listen to them, I listen to them on Spotify so they can get that point zero 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 one cent, you know. But, you know, what I do love about it, it's kind of like you said, like that musical archaeology is that I can click on that little fans also like tab and i will easily find seven bands that i've never heard of and i will click play yeah. and then i'll go where have you been all my life you know what i mean yeah it's same, <laughs> same way i'm exactly the same way i'm like that that's just a great way to listen to music is, is just randomly hitting on those things now that used to be done by going to the records so although that's back again now too but that used to be a lot of my youth growing up was being in the record store for hours, oh. just kind of randomly listening to whatever got put on in in the store and discovering things through that, you know. And uh, uh, I've recently become one of those hipsters <laughs> 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 again, where I, I I bought a bunch of vinyl things recently, or re- repurchased, I should say, because I gave all the all the stuff away years ago, and. Um, but just standing in the store and listening and hearing bands that I absolutely wouldn't hear otherwise is uh, it's such a joy. I mean, it's such a great thing to discover, you know, and then when something clicks, you've got that music, you know, it becomes part of your soundtrack of your life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm kind of like you. I, and I don't know if it's a nostalgia thing or if it's kind of, you know, like I said, like just us getting older and kind of remembering, you know, that kind of magic, you know, like like I was telling a friend one time, I said, you know, the fans also like tab was pretty much the record store burnout guy, you know, where like, 
Yeah. When I first discovered that Ronnie James Dio sang for Black Sabbath because it was on a compilation, I lost my shit. And I went to the record store, dude. I'm like, dude, Dio sang for Sabbath? What should I get? And he's like, man, I'd get live evil, man, you know, because that's like, you'll get to hear him do some of the Ozzy stuff too. You know what I mean? And I'm like, awesome. Yeah, that was a a whole era that you might not have discovered had you not gone out of that way. Um, I remember, you know, it's funny with, with sticks, you know, I've, this is, I mean, I've been in the band 20 years now and I have so many memories of it, but one of my strongest memories, but I, I recall back in 1977 being in the record store and, uh, it was the same year, I believe, as I went in to get Yes's, uh, I think it was Going for the One was the album okay. in that year or something. I think it was that one. Could have been Tornado, but anyway. Uh, I went in to get that Yes album, and I saw the artwork for Grand Illusion. I'd never, you know, so the record had come out, had been out a couple of months. It was front racked because I think it was like number, it was in the top five. Right. But I loved the artwork, and it made me, <laughs> I remember it made me kind of go up to the guy behind the counter who was the kind of the uh, the, the king of all music. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I looked at, can I hear this record, you know? And he had, it, he had a copy there and he put it on. That was the first time I ever heard uh, that album. I remember standing, listening to the whole thing and kind of looking at the artwork and looking at J.Y. and Tommy, particularly on the back cover, and wondering, man. You know, I remember J.Y. I said to him, man, look at this picture of him. I thought, yeah, this guy tucks his pants into his boots. <laughs> and that's coming to that's, that's becoming that's becoming kind of a thing, you know. <laughs> You're like, good God, what he are they doing it. over there in America? <laughs> no, he loves that. I, I thought, you know, this is this is what's wrong with my band. We're not tucking our pants and our boots enough. So, <laughs> yeah. well, the question is, so, do you guys anyway. still do that? <laughs> oh, you know, we 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 often tuck, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Okay, that's a whole that's a that's a whole Sometimes. other podcast, man. <laughs> I guess so. No, anyway, you can take that anywhere you want it. But no, we um, no occasion occasionally it, it it happens by accident where just you know one one. Well, let's go back to this real quick. Was that you had a really successful uh, run of uh, Gowan shows? You know, how did it feel to get back to you know? Get back to your own machine, where like it was your thing. How- you know, I, I really identical to what happened with Sticks about I, arbitrarily maybe twelve to fourteen years ago, when I was playing in the band. I, I began to notice that younger and younger people were discovering the band mm-hmm. uh, and coming out to the shows and singing all the words, etc. And and I saw in in Chuck and, and Tommy and JY particularly this great feeling uh, it was you know under uh, you couldn't miss it of the fact that, that wow we've we've jumped generations here now this is this is this is really going on to where we, we might be able to play this stuff for the rest of our lives because right you know there are these new generations of it so I have begun to see that happen in my own uh, solo career because it, it really follows the sticks career, say, by 10 years, so to speak. You know, my biggest records came out between 85 and ni- 1993, mm-hmm. and the biggest sticks records came out between 75 and 1983. So it's almost like 
that gap, that lag that I had of those 10 years suddenly started to kick in with, uh, in, in, in that world for me. So it's funny. And I've got, you know, Todd Sperman comes out and plays in my, uh, my solo band as well. So we've right. got, you know, two, two guys from sticks are, are now, uh, you know, a, a part of that world. Um, really, I couldn't be having any more fun than I am having. I really enjoy it. I, I enjoy, you know, we're going to do about 20, a little more than 20 gallon shows this year. And then we're doing 80 plus, probably like 90 stick shows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a, uh, it, it, it's I, honestly, I, I, I just can't, I can't emphasize just how rewarding it is, you know, as a musician to, to be able to see that many people with big smiles on their faces at the end of the night. Well, you know, because I mean, like how, like you said, like Gowan, you know, as, as its own entity, like has a, a large fan base, like you have, like all throughout the decades and whatnot. But one of the things that I kind of like, you talked about how, like, you know, your most popular albums were from like '85 to like what you said that like the '90s or something. Yeah, but you can call me Larry. <laughs> That album, yeah. that is, <laughs> that's a pretty big chunk of magic right there. Like, that's got to be something you've got to be proud of, but at the same time, wish that more people would grasp onto, I would I would assume. Well, um, again, I'm really glad, Don, that you brought that record up. That came out in 93, and uh, mm-hmm. it was, at that time, it was this, this <laughs> huge... Uh, challenge was the transition from the 80s and, and the video being the center of, of, of anyone's career that was heard of in the 80s mm-hmm. to pivoting to something where the more the singer-songwriter aspect of what you do and much of this was spearheaded by uh, you know I, I remember particularly when Eric Clapton played uh, Layla acoustically on guitar on what, what eventually became MTV's uh, Unplugged series Correct. that really was a a complete mindset change, you know, and and uh, that album, Lawrence Camp, but you can call me Larry, was a way of somewhat distancing myself from that 80s uh, television personality that people knew, uh, you know, in Canada, and focusing on something far more singer-songwriter-based and with much more uh, acoustic guitar at the, at the center of the songwriting. Uh, and yes, that was, uh, you know, there were some phenomenal players on that record, too, I should say. So two guys from Peter Gabriel's band, being Jerry Murata and Tony Love, and Jerry actually produced the record. Mm-hmm. Um, I was co-wrote a, a few of the songs with Eddie Schwartz, who a great songwriter who had worked with Paul Carrick and, and with the Doobie Brothers, and of course he wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot for Pat Benatar, but a great songwriter mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, and that was kind of the, the beginning of me really co-writing with people. I'd always written on my own uh, prior to that. Well, a little bit with him prior to. And then, uh, oh, so other players on that record were like, you know, Robert Fripp, <laughs> believe it or not. Oh, my God. He, he played on one song. He um, came out of a, his cryogenic chamber to actually, you know. <laughs> yeah, but that was way back then. Also, we had... Who else did we have? We had uh, John Sebastian from the Love and Spoonful. Like it really oh cost a lot of yeah, a lot of yeah, a lot of um, a lot of you know phenomenal artists played on that record. And I would I would say that that record 
ends up sonically speaking as well as Strange Animal, but in a completely different way, in a completely different era of, uh, of, of my own, you know, solo life prior to Sticks. Oh, yeah. So it's funny, when I, when I opened for Sticks, it was about half that record and half of Strange Animal was mostly what I played. And then that and, and my biggest song, which is actually called Moonlight Desires, which is one I did, you know, that featured John Anderson from Yes. Right. So... Um, that kind of stuff I was playing when, uh, that is exactly what I was playing when, uh, when, I, when I opened for Sticks in Montreal, and eventually that led to me getting into the band. You know, because that's what I was going to say was about that album in general, was that what I loved about that is that you could totally, or I could totally hear the shift in the, the waves of sorts, you know what I mean? Like you went from this 80s, <laughs> But then, like, when you go into the 90s with, you know, But You Can Call Me Larry, it still sounded like you, and it, like, vocally and lyric, but, like, sonically, you could totally tell that you were, like, not really writing your, your past off, but you were saying, okay, it's time to kind of pick up where we are now and then move forward with this. It's yeah, well, uh, excellent because that that was entirely the intention. There's the, the, one of the biggest challenges for a songwriter, or a musician, is, is to transition usually from one decade into the next. And if you look at the great bands that were around in the '70s, it was only a, a small handful of them could made the transition into what the '80s turned out to be. And and particularly, you know, some bands just couldn't make that video transition, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that 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 was. A, Basically, a mandate of, of how of how a band had to evolve from a '70s entity into something that, that was relative in the '80s, and a few bands found you know great ways of doing that. And usually, more the, the more visual bands I'd see, you know, Genesis is probably the best example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they and they had to withstand you know one of the most monument possibly the most monumental member change in the history of any band. <laughs> Absolutely, and they, and they managed. Yeah, and they managed to do it and have two two entirely separate careers, you know, with Peter Gabriel and with well, three really: Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, and Genesis. And Genesis, so it yeah, astounding careers throughout the 1980s. After being such a unique and astounding career in the 70s, there aren't many bands that were able to make that that powerful a, a, a transition from from one decade to the other. Um, so yeah, so basically, I was in my own in my own little way in Canada. That's what I was attempting to, you know, in, in some ways, uh, uh, you know, emulate by by changing the sound into the '90s, which is something far more relevant to that period. I mean, it's it's artistic growth too, because it's it's the thing that keeps you from okay. You can either become a nostalgia. 80s skeleton of sorts, you know, or you can be an artist that says, you know what, it's okay to move with the times and to move forward, you know, I mean, which is kind of what Six did with uh, the mission. You like my segue there, by the way? <laughs> I very much so. I, 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 that's why I, I'm not even interrupting. I like everything you <laughs> Well, because, you know, as a Sticks fan, for me, you know, like you and I have talked about this before, is, you know, my father was a huge Sticks fan and he was just like, you know, yeah. you know, he, I mean, he, you know, a lot of times he would base how great an album was on, you know, the Grand Illusion or, you know, Pieces of Eight and whatnot. 
And, you know, I, I never knew much more about sticks than that, you know, other than Mr. Roboto and whatnot. But, man, when, right. when, when the mission came forward, like, that was when I heard sticks kind of saying, okay, we're moving into another era. Like, you know, I feel like that that album yeah. as a concept, as a, you know, musically, e- even down to the songwriting and conceptually, whatever, like, it, it seemed like a new life for the band. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. That that was that was what, what I'm referring to here. That's exactly what, what they had to do as a band. And I that's part of what I, you know, respect about that whole Mr. Roboto era. Mm-hmm. Uh was was that that was there much the same as Queen, you know, when they did Body Language, for example, and uh, uh, that that was kind of their transition into the into the into the eighties. And it was it was tough for bands to do that, you know. No, oh, yeah. Um, but but you know the ones the ones that really focused on it really uh, most of them survived because they just showed their their versatility, uh, you know, and and. Yeah, Sticks did it with with Mr. Roboto, and that's why that's one of the reasons I, I really enjoy playing that song. Well, so you guys kind of you you guys did the mission in its entirety in Vegas, um, which w- would you have considered that kind of a test run to see how it would go over? Because now you guys are hitting the road and performing the album in its entirety. Thank thank God. Yeah. Um, but was that kind of like yeah. a test run? And if so, um. Like were there were there were there any challenges towards preparing to deliver that album live because it really is a pretty epic you know conceptual piece. There were huge challenges, really. Quite honestly, it's 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 the pinnacle of what I've experienced with, with in my time in the band is 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 the mission and the way it was it's been accepted by uh, you know longtime Sticks fans and new Sticks fans that that basically wanted something that resonated really well with the era that they, you know, gravitate towards, which is the, generally the late 70s and that classic rock sound of sticks. So, you know, with with mainly Tommy and JY, but particularly Tommy and our producer, Willie Vankovich, mm-hmm. kind of curating the uh, the sonic part of it to make sure that it, it, that it did tie well with with the classic sticks records that was that was hurdle number one and hurdle number two was to make sure that the record was strong enough that we really believed in it and and thought we're going we're, we're eventually going to play this whole record even if people can't stand it <laughs> screw that man <laughs> i want to hear it <laughs> we, we 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 knew it was going to be strong and and when we saw the reaction from people and we saw the fact that it had survived on the billboard classic rock chart for over a year and that's really, really the only classic rock band that's been able to do that to withstand to to stay on there with new music for over for over one year was that told us that this this is this has got legs as they say. Mm-hmm. And um, when we saw that the Las Vegas show sold out at the, at the Palms and, and it was billed entirely as Sticks the Mission and, and with you know this is the night we're going to play it in its entirety, we really started rehearsing for that show six months in advance. Um, you know, the record had been out a year and a half by the time we played that show, and and uh, we brought Will, actually the producer Will, with us on stage, uh, and for all the rehearsals because there were extra parts that needed to be played, and also basically for him to kind of really scrutinize everyone's individual 
part to make sure you were playing what was on the record and that, mm-hmm. it, and that it was coming across live, uh, authentically connected to the record. It's, it's funny because once you've played stuff live for about a year or so, things things shift. It's, it's a weird phenomenon within bands. Things shift like by incremental degrees at first, and then the next thing you know, you're playing them quite differently. Yeah, but, because um, when you're playing the same songs, you know, over and over again, you kind of find yourself drifting into that kind of like, oh, you know, I don't want, you know, like I can get, I can get a little experimental here because you know you're so familiar yep. and connected with the song already. But with the, with, with the mission, you're talking about songs that you haven't played probably since you recorded them. Correct. So, so you see, we had to we had to really focus on that and. Then there was the whole visual aspect of it as well. So we got a lot of footage from NASA, uh, you know, made lovely contributions, you know, particularly some of the Pluto uh, photos, etc. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, uh, oh, it was great. And then we had this, like a six-story high screen behind us, you know, kind of showing this whole uh, mission unfolding, you know, as we were playing the album. But yeah, we're going to be doing more of them this year. There, immediately, the demand was you got to do a whole tour like that, and and I, hopefully, eventually, we will. But we are doing. I think we have three more entire mission shows booked for this year, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll keep plugging them in as we go along because we do change our show throughout the year anyway. Right, right. Because yeah, I mean, I would love to hear that album in its entirety. <laughs> You know, I just really, you know, like, you, you know, I, I've been, I've been, I've been, you know, per, you know, um, what's the word? I've been kind of poking you with a stick about playing the greater good, you know, and I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, come on, man, just do Actually, this. We've, we've done, we've done that one. We've done the greater good in a number of shows, even beyond the, the mission show. We've done it, you know, it's, it's popped up into the set list at, at least maybe 20 25 times over the over the last year so hopefully you're going to hear that one at some, at some point uh, i think the next mission shows are in uh new york and i think on long island uh, in october and november of this year uh because we've got a really busy summer ahead of us with that uh, we're going to in a couple of weeks we go to england and then norway and sweden and then we come back here there's there's a lot going on and then uh, we'll prepare for those mission shows so was there a reason why you didn't decide that you guys decided not to do this as a full tour that like with the upcoming tour? Yes. Do, do you think it was just what, what, what was the reason? Because we're in a different era now. Mm-hmm. It used to be that when you, when a new album came out, that was the album you were touring and you were going to ram it hard as hard as you could <laughs> at people. Just like and drive it down their throats. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what, yeah. Both that was really what was expected and what was that was what you were facing. Uh, it's it's a different era now where you know that that look, most people are coming out to get the the, St- the sticks epic adventure that's been forged for decades now, mm-hmm. and they want that they want that to to be the, the that's the heart of what people expect of any classic rock band, you know. Right. Uh, at the same time, they expect good music, but they want it to be great. They want it to, they want it to live up to the expectations they have based upon your your um, your your catalog. So, it's it, with us. We really said, look, if if we really feel that people love it, we're going to play shows where we play it in its entirety. In the meantime, we'll just keep adding more songs from it as the demand goes up. So, I mean, last night here we played 
Gone, Gone, Gone. We did uh, Radio Silence, and we did Key Dive. So there's three from 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 the mission right there. Right. And we came on to the the Overture piece. So we're actually, in a in a way, it was almost half the album was there for them last night. But uh, tonight we'll probably throw in Red Storm. Like that might be in the middle of the set. And we really gauge like Red Storm is going over as well. Say as fooling yourself. For to just give you an example. Right. As long as that continues. We'll, we'll keep we'll keep plugging those songs in, but if we feel in any way that it's that it's a letdown to the audience or that they're 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 losing the plot because we're playing something new, we'll just drop it. But that hasn't happened with any songs from the mission so far. So like so as an artist though, who you know, you guys put so much into this album, and obviously we're very proud of it because, like you said, I mean you you come out guns blazing opening up with Gone 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 off the new album. I mean, well, or the newest yeah. album, I should say. Um, yeah. Is there is there a slight sense of frustration where you kind of wish that, especially like North American audiences, would be more open to just hearing the whole album in its entirety? Well, sure. You know, any musician, you know, <laughs> all the songwriters I've worked with, you know, over the years are guys that I know that are songwriters. The latest song you've written, you you actually believe is your is your best song ever. You usually believe that, and then eventually the audience tells you whether it is or not. Um, <laughs> but you want to play that new thing more than anything, you know, um, because it's it's most it's most reflective of where you are, you know, on your life arc, uh, you know, up to the moment, so to speak. Right. Um, so yeah, you 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 want to do that, but but at the same time we're. These guys are very smart, and they really they, they they really do, in a lot of ways. It's it's not so bad anymore to kind of um, t- take into consideration what the audience really are, are coming to hear primarily, and that that is they want to hear those big stick songs they heard from the past, and then, you know, once you've got them in that in that mood that they they feel satisfied with that. Mm-hmm. They may be open to something new if it's strong enough. I, I I would say quite honestly, a lot of bands from that era they come out with new things that just aren't up to the same standard of quality, and right. that could be down to all kinds of reasons. These are, they don't spend as much time writing. They don't spend as much time in the studio. They don't spend as much time together as a band, for example. Right. And then on top of that, they don't they don't have producers whose careers are dependent upon the success of your new record and they don't have A&R departments at record companies who likewise, whose careers are completely down to, to your latest record. Instead, you've just got this mass audience of, of, uh, of faithful followers and, and you've got your own life to, to reflect upon. And sometimes that's not quite enough to come up with songs that are of a standard that, that meet the audience's expectations. I think, we took all of that into consideration, and we were our own harshest critics on on that album. Mm-hmm. And as as we made the pact that we made was, if we don't love it, we don't have to put it out. It won't change our career not to put it out. But we right. loved it, and we thought we know people are going to dig this, so we put it out. And you know, as JY points out, it is the it is the most positively reviewed Sticks album in history. <laughs> there are more positive reviews. There are more positive reviews about the mission than anything they ever did in the past. I mean, sometimes they, some of the reviews are just Harsh. horrendous. <laughs> yes, <know>. I know. <laughs> horrendous and and unwarranted for albums that, that have stood the test of time, and uh, you know, and the, the critics of which have 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 
long long ago met their demise. It's amazing those those records still stand and and those songs still still work so well. You know, it's so funny because you know even to go again transcend genres, you know, Iron Maiden, kind of the same thing. Like those guys have been consistently putting out new music. I mean, it's like they've never stopped putting out records. But all of their records are just as good, if not better, that you know they can match the classics. But then when you see them tour, you know, they'll do a very short run in America of the album tour, you know, where they'll play a lot of songs off the album. They'll go to Europe, yeah. all over the world. But yeah. then they come to America, and for their long runs, it's usually like a, a hits type of tour because, again, they kind of figured it out. They were just like, American audiences don't want to hear us necessarily play, you know, a full album, you know, or like, you know, Book of Souls in its entirety, which they actually did, and it was like, it was a number one record for them, you know, which said a lot, yep. you know, and that was like yep. one of the first times they did it extensively. So I definitely see how it's a sign of keeping yourself relevant by being able to go out and have new material that you're proud of. And like you said, you know, Iron Maiden could probably not make a record ever again and still sell out amphitheaters and stadiums all over the yeah. world you know yeah. mm -hmm. it's part of the lifeblood of the band however that, that to make new music you know uh a band like iron maiden don't have to put out new music as you say and and, and that's really a, a situation that sticks is in but it is part of, it's part of the lifeblood of the band to come up with new things especially things that you're proud of but in addition to that Bands have to be smart. It's usually bands that have guys in them that've got some, you know, their, their finger on the pulse of what an audience will will and will not, you know, accept. And in America, they the, the general mindset. Not everyone's like Don De La Mont. De La um, <laughs> the general the general mindset is they want they want to hear you basically come out play a greatest hits show. That's that's the primary audience. The next tier of audience wants that along with something fresh and new that they can claim for, the, for their own. And then there's another tier that goes, no, I really want to hear what you're doing right now because that's more that's more relevant to, to me and my relationship to this band or to this artist than anything. And that those people in America, anyways, tend to be in the, minor, in the minority, whereas you may find greater numbers amongst that group in Europe. That's true, you know, because, again... I, I've always said this, that, that I always found that European audiences are more refined when it comes to, you know, being open to new material because, you know, again, like me and my friends always joke around. It's like, it's like we should we should just start going to Europe to see shows because like we're never going to hear what we want to hear in America. You know, we want to hear new they, songs or deep tracks, they, you know. Well, in, in North America in general, we, we tend to want to categorize things. We want We want things in very tidy, uh, you know, divisions. <laughs> Whereas in Europe, for example, when we go and play at Sweden Rock next month, last time we played at Sweden Rock, it was us and Ozzy Osbourne and Spock's Beard and uh, like uh, uh, such a wide array of bands. And uh, who else was on that? Megadeth was on as well. It was like metal bands mixed with heavy rock bands mixed with classic rock bands mixed with uh, progressive rock bands. I loved it, but you don't see that here. You don't, 
generally you don't see that here. There are probably some festivals that do mix it up a, a little more than usual, but but the predominant thing is is we we don't mix genres as as readily as they do in Europe. Right. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but that's just basically how that's that's how our genetics play out. <laughs> It's, like, it's it's stubborn American, <laughs> you know. It's just like because I, I would love to, I would here, love to go to those festivals, want, you know, where it's like Styx, yeah. Megadeth, you know, <laughs> like I was I would be beside well, I, myself. That's okay. It, it's okay though because everyone has a different uh, measuring stick for for how they get their money's worth out of anything. <laughs> and this is what happens here. <laughs> we like the classics, so that's fine. Yeah. yeah, well, and again, it it's also goes back to giving the fans what they want, because at the end of the day, you create new music for, you know, as a musician myself, I also know this, you know, we do this because we're selfish. We do this for selfish. We do this for us. But at the end of the day, you know, when you're at a certain level, you you give the fans what they want, you know, but yet you still, Absolutely. you still manage to obviously enjoy it and not feel like, oh, God. Here we go with Miss America. No, and, you know no, it always no, no, just no. sounds new and fresh and fun. You know. Well, that's that's because every day is another opportunity to embrace that song if you if you if you choose to uh, recognize and, and live by that opportunity. There are musicians whose careers are usually shorter lived who begin to lose sight of that. You know, so luckily Sticks is not a band like that. Um, there, there are all kinds of reasons as to why why things will survive and why other things don't. Much of it is luck as well. So let's let's acknowledge that. We've been very fortunate to be to this point to be you know able bodied and able to, to to continue on and play these things. So you know what what audiences want is kind of what we want. And uh, by the time they told us that they wanted more songs from the mission, we started playing more, and that's going to continue. See, that's fantastic. And you know what? Atlanta is always stoked and always excited for Sticks to come. You know, I can't wait yeah. to see you guys again. It's going to be fantastic. And the venue you guys are playing are one of those, like, uh, amphitheaters that has the tables, you know, at front with, like, the wine I and know. cheese people. Yeah. Will you be joining anyone yeah. to ha- for their wine and cheese <laughs> throughout the show? Oh, oh, coming out. Yeah, you're funny. Um, <laughs> I don't, we've played Chastain a couple of times over the, my last 20 years of the yeah. band, and I, I, li- I like when we change up the venues like that. You know, it's a different mindset that uh, goes into a night like that. It's a beautiful kind of summer, you know, out in the woods kind of <laughs> type of concert. Right. Uh, but really classy thing, you know, there's, uh, we class it up a bit. <laughs> classing, a, classing up the classic rock. So, uh, yeah, sure, sure. I'll go out and swig some wine with anybody. Come on, man. <laughs> we, we we need Lawrence Gowan to declass it just a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm always up for that. I'm always up for that. If, if they're serving some Molson Canadian, I'll I'll dive right into the suds. Oh man, I'll, you know what? I'll I'll make sure to bring you some. <laughs> oh, right. Well, Lawrence, I really appreciate you once again taking the time out to talk. It's always a pleasure. It's always fun, and I'm I'm so excited for the tour, and I look forward to seeing you guys once again back in Atlanta. Thank you. Uh, look forward to seeing you, Don. Great to talk to you again. And looking forward to uh, Chastain in Atlanta. It's going to be fun. It's just a few days away. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward to it, okay. too. And we'll, see, we'll talk to you soon, man.
All the best. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Cheers. You know, just open up your eyes. The things that got us here have little weight. Perhaps a chance to be a man. You dream to be 